to have. In 1 Timothy 6, we're going to look at the first six verses of the chapter. Stand if you can, if you're so able, for the reading of the Word of God, 1 Timothy 6. And we're going to read from verse 1 down through verse 6. We'll read responsively. I'll begin in 1. We'll begin together in verse 2 and read down with that pattern through verse 6. The Bible says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed together. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit these things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and stripes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We're looking at this series, Rich Toward God. We talked about that last week out of the parable where in Luke where Jesus talked about the man who had great wealth and great abundance and uh, accumulated a lot from a harvest and wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger barns so that he could eat and, and drink wine and be merry. And, and um, uh, there uh, God said, Tonight thou fool, thy soul will be required of thee. And then he said to his disciples that this man was rich in earthly abundance but was not rich toward God. He was poor in heaven while being rich on earth. And so I posed this question this morning, are you rich toward God? Are you rich toward God? I didn't ask what kind of car you drive. I didn't ask how many garage doors your home has. I didn't ask uh, uh, what uh, type of restaurants you eat at. I didn't ask what how affluent your friends are. I asked you, are you rich toward God? We're going to look at this title this morning, God's Formula to become rich. God's formula to become rich. Boy, everyone wants to know how to become rich. How many get-rich-quick schemes are there out there? How many pastors are there out there or TV evangelists out there that say, uh, do this and you'll become rich? Well, I am on TV because we have a camera back there and we have a YouTube channel. And I am preaching about being rich, but I promise you this is no health and wealth gospel sermon. Let's pray together. We'll get right into the meat of the of the text here shortly. Lord, thank you for this chance to gather and Lord, open the Bible. And I pray that during this time as our hearts have been prepared through singing that we would enjoy a, a time with you through your word. Help us as we walk through the pages of scripture, Lord, that the spirit would convict us and show us. Lord, change is hard, especially for adults. We get our minds set and our mentality set and and Lord, our habits become so where we don't like to change. And very few of us uh, actually make uh, big changes at once. But Lord, this morning, would you show us where fundamental changes need to be made in our thinking and in our actions. And Lord, help us to have the character to do so, so that we are in line with your word and we are in line with truth. Be with us now this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God's formula to become rich. What does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be rich? Uh, 
To be honest, when I hear the word rich, the very first image I get in my head is Scrooge McDuck diving into a pile of coins with dollar signs for eyeballs. How many know what I'm talking about this morning? All right. The rest of you have not lived life if you don't know who Scrooge McDuck is. All right. Uh, What does it mean to be rich? If you were to stop ten people at random outside of a church setting, outside of a church setting, and ask them this question, they'd probably say something like this. Being rich is having lots of money. Having lots of money. Take your Bibles over to Psalm chapter 40. Hold your place in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, Psalm chapter 40. Having lots of money. Most folks define rich in terms of dollars and cents. Dollars and cents. Now, they might define it in terms of the possessions they have, but even that was bought with money, and so our thinking becomes uh, very linear. We see it as, uh, how much money do I have? Because dollars equate to buying power, and buying power leads to comfortable things. Look at Psalm 40, and look at verse 17. Here David writes, he says, But I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. Again, David says, I am poor and needy. David, I have a question for you. You have a castle filled with silver and gold. How dare you have the audacity to call yourself poor? You are a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy man. But David was not poor in money. David, at this point in his life, was poor in relationships. David was poor because of sin he had committed. David was poor with God in heaven. I'm going to put a quote up here on the screen, and I'd like for you to write it down if you're so able to do this. Rich and poor are not defined by dollars and cents, but by contentment and discontentment. Rich and poor are not defined by dollars and cents, but by contentment and discontentment. Ben Franklin famously said, uh, contentment makes poor men rich and discontentment makes rich men poor. That was very astute. Uh, that was very observant of Mr. Franklin. Very true. Rich and poor are not defined by dollars and cents, but by contentment and discontentment. Let me illustrate. The story is told about a pilot who always looked down intensely on a certain valley in the Appalachians when the plane passed overhead. One day, his co-pilot asked, he said, what's so interesting about that spot for you? You banked the plane uh, left, and so you can look out your window and, and, and see that same spot every time we fly over this. The pilot replied, he said, see that stream down there? He said, well, when I was a boy, I used to sit down there, and I, on a log, and I'd fish. And he said, when I was a kid, I used to sit there and look up, and I would see the planes flying overhead. And he would say to, my, he said, I would say to myself, one day, I'm going to be, I'm going to fly a plane. Uh, I'm going to fly that plane. One day, I'm going to fly that plane. He said, now that I'm flying the plane, I look down in the valley, and I wish I was sitting back on that log fishing. It's always tempting to think that others have it better than we do. Isn't it? Well, if I had such and such as life, if I had such and such as position, if I had such and such as money, if I had 
fill in the blank, I would then be content. We always think other people have it better than we do, and that if we just had a little bit more, just a little bit more, everything would be fine. But contentment cannot be achieved by increasing possessions. Nothing will ever be enough. Nothing will ever be enough. You cannot find contentment by increasing relationships. Nothing, no one, will ever be enough. I believe that the Bible has the answer to all of life's problems. It not only helps us out of the hard times, but tells us how to thrive and prosper. How does one prosper? Uh, He reaches a point of contentment when it comes to his or her personal belongings and social economical status. Uh, Let's look at two main thoughts this morning as we consider this thought, the formula to become rich. Let's jump in. Number one, notice our expectations, our expectations. If it's your first time here, on the back of our bulletin, you'll find an outline, uh, fill-in-the-blank outline, and you can fill in the blanks as we go. That way you have something to remember the sermon by this morning. First Timothy 6, let's look at verse number 3. Let's read down through verse number 5. The Bible says, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men and of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. Notice that, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Letter A, notice the types of expectations, the types of of expectations. Uh, there are put on all of us expectations in life. In fact, uh, in a 168-hour period of a week, you have all kinds of expectations put on you from all kinds of different directions. Let me highlight a few of those here. Uh, first notice, we have social or cultural expectations. There is a certain behavior that the world tries to force upon us. Is there not? The world tries to tell us exactly how to behave. Um, uh, Let me give you some examples of this. Their agenda is that you are to be politically correct. Politically correct. Uh, I'm just going to put this out here. I I don't like, I'm not a fan of political correctness. I don't like other people trying to control my behavior and try to tell me how to think and how to behave, especially people who are not coming from a Christian worldview. Uh, I don't mind people from a Christian worldview trying to manipulate, and I don't mean that in a a negative way, but manipulate my behavior to be in line with the Bible. I don't have any issue with that. But uh, when people come along and they're trying to ban certain words or certain phrases or or trying to push us into a certain type of behavior, I feel as though there are people uh, with a hidden agenda trying to steer us like cattle in a certain direction, and there is this agenda to be politically correct. Uh, There is another agenda out there I think many Christians have have fallen in the trap of, and that is that we're to treat politics like a religion. Treat politics like a religion. Uh, Why are there 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week cable news channels? Why do those exist? Can I tell you why? Because enough people watch them to justify having them. There's not just one or two of them. There's dozens of them. 
There's dozens of them. They're, they're popping up all over the place. And if you can't find it on your cable TV package, there are other cable TV packages that have others that are more offbeat. And listen, no matter what uh, a flavor of a political uh, a direction you want to follow, there is a channel out there that's probably going to line up with your way of thinking. And we worship politics. We worship politics. I get behind some of these cars, and if this happens to be your car, I don't know it. I don't know anyone in our church that does this, okay? But I get behind uh, one of these cars, and they've got political bumper stickers just plastered everywhere, right? I mean, they've got a, um, a Clinton-Gore bumper sticker from way back in 92, and, and uh, they've, I mean, they've got them all, right? Or uh, they've got a, a Dole Kemp. How many old enough to remember when Dole Kemp ran, right? Uh, some of you have completely forgotten about that because he, he didn't do very well. I think he lost to Clinton. But uh, they got, uh, they've got all kinds of slogans. and they, I mean, the back of their car looks like it's just been all tattooed up with bumper stickers. And listen, you sit down with someone who's driven by a political agenda and you try to talk to them about Jesus, and in about five minutes, they want to talk about politics. They want to talk about what's going on in Washington, D.C. They want to talk about why either President Biden is corrupt or why President Trump was corrupt. And they want to go on and on and on talking about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and on and on and on. And and listen, we have have a problem in our country where we, we worship politics as though it is a religion. It is a religion. We have this agenda being pushed on us to be politically correct, to treat politics like religion. Here's another one. You should be tolerant and you should be... Uh, to- I'll just uh, read, it, uh, read it the way I have it written here. Tolerance and acceptance at all costs. Tolerance and acceptance at all costs. I told someone this the other day. I said, um, if I had a brother, I don't, but if I had a brother who was a cocaine addict and that cocaine was killing him, and, he, and I told him, I said, brother, I love you. I hate the cocaine. Cocaine's got to go. He says, well, the cocaine defines me. I wear shirts that my paraphernalia that talks about my love for cocaine, and, and my friends all do it, and, and if you don't love cocaine, then you hate me. I would say, no, that cocaine's going to put you in the grave. I hate that cocaine, but I love you, and I love you enough to hate the cocaine. You all getting the parallel here? I don't need to pull out the parallel, do I? We're being told tolerance and acceptance at all costs. And my friend, uh, if you love God's Word and you know the truth and you understand God created human sexuality and He sets the boundaries and the rules around it, guess what? I can love you and I can hate the sexual sin that you've fallen in at the same time. Because I can see that that is destroying you. And it's destroying our culture. Social, cultural expectations. Those loom over all of us. Whether or not you swim upstream on those things or you swim downstream with those things, all of these things loom over the head of each one that lives in the United States of America in 2022. Notice next, work expectations. Look at 1 Timothy 6 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. So 1 Timothy 6, 1 says, If you are an employee, you are to treat your employer with great respect. You are to uh, count him worthy of 
honor. You are to obey Him. You are to do exactly as you are told at work, as long as you're not being commanded to violate the tenets of the Bible and your faith. What are the expectations that you have from work? Well, maybe you face deadlines on projects. Some of you go to work and your boss says, I need this by this time. All right, well, you got to get it done, right? And there's some pressure there. How about uh, overtime, right? You ever had your boss come to you and say, I need you to work overtime? And you think, I don't want to work overtime. And the boss says, I don't care. Do you like your job? Then you're going to work some overtime. Um, how about social interactions with ungodly people, right? We have some folks here in our church that have a delivery job. They go around delivering things in different places. I had a delivery job one time here in Connecticut. You know what? You walk into some pretty vile situations and you interact with some pretty vile people. Uh, Others of you have a cubicle job and you work in a cubicle office setting. And boy, there's just cursing around you all the time and dirty joke telling. And uh, you've got the break time where you go in the break room to eat your, you know, your granola and yogurt, and everyone else goes outside and smoke a cigarette. And uh, you, you feel that, where do I fit? How do I, how do I make this work? And, and, and there's these, there are these pressures. How about this one? Unrealistic performance numbers. Any of you ever had a boss breathe down your neck and say, I need this and I need it now? And you think there is no way. Brother Vara, all of your employees are nodding their head with everything I'm saying. I don't know what's going on over here. Uh, you just got that whip out, don't you, all the time. So, uh, unrealistic, um, uh, unrealistic performance numbers where you better perform. We're looking at social, cultural expectations, work expectations. Here's another one. How about financial expectations? There are some life pressures that come with financial expectations. You better pay your bills on time. What happens if you don't pay your bills on time? You get called, don't you? Right? I, my wife drove through um, one of those, uh, oh, I think it was over the, uh, I still call it the Tappan Zee Bridge. I think the proper name is the Governor Mario Cuomo Bridge, right? And she drove through it with her car. We didn't have an easy pass in there. And you know what? We got one of those, you know, in the mail where you got to, how many of you ever get those in the mail where you got to pay the toll? And uh, I didn't get to it right away. And the next thing you know, they hit me with a $50 fine. $50 fine. What is this? Right? And, uh, boy, if you don't pay it after the $50, I heard they double that and make it a $100 fine. I paid that thing off real quick. Um, <laughs> I don't want that coming in the mail. But deadlines, right? When I was young and, and dumb, um, I, I had credit cards, and I ended up in credit card debt. And, and you know what? Didn't pay my credit card in time. And I had debt collectors calling me, pow, 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 five, six, seven, eight times a day. I don't have any more credit cards, and we're out of debt, praise the Lord. Uh, but those were those, those, were those uh, pay your bills on time expectations. How about this one? You need to invest in your future, Right? You need a 401k. You need an IRA. Well, you got to put money away for retirement. Uh, it's going to be here a lot sooner than you think. Saving. Uh, uh, then there are the expectations. You better save for your kids to go to college because they're going to have a big college bill. You better pay that. And, oh, and by the way, you better have a, an emergency fund, six months of savings in the bank because uh, you never know when, when life could hit you hard and you're going to need to dip into that. And, and then on top of that, you come to church and the pastor says, hey, you need to give in the offering plate. And you think, oh, all these pressures... Not only are there life pressures when it comes to our finances, but there are socioeconomic pressures, right? Middle class are pushed on TV. If you watch enough TV or have enough commercials in front of you, or even if you just drive down the road and look at the billboards, middle class are pushed to own upper middle class items, 
right? Oh, you know what? You're now making in that seventy to hundred thousand, hundred and twenty thousand dollar range. You should be able to afford a luxury car. And the reality is, you can't afford a luxury car, right? You think you can work it out, but then you pull up to the pump, and it needs premium gas. And what does premium gas car cost right now, right? And then uh, you go to get an oil change, and you got to take it to the dealer, right? Because Monroe's not going to change your oil out on that, you know, luxury vehicle you have. And, uh, or you don't want Monroe to change the oil out because it's Monroe, amen? Uh, so you, you take it to the dealer. And the next thing you know, you know, you're two, $3,000 in, and you've been pushed to own upper-middle-class items because that's what they do. Uh, it's always more and more and more. And you, you thought back when you made 50000 a year, if I could make 100000 a year, I would have money left over. But because you've been pressured and you came to the pressure, now there's no... And then there are those who live below the poverty line, and they're pushed to own middle-class things. But not only are there financial expectations put on you, there are also familial expectations, okay? Everyone in here, you hold several titles when it comes to your family. For example, I am a son, I am a brother, I am a husband, and I am a father. And with each one of those titles, there are expectations that are put on me to perform. As a son, I am told, uh, be a good uh, be a good son and call and visit your parents regularly. i got to call my mom. And you know what? If I don't call my mom, mom, if you're watching right now, I love you. Um, but uh, if I don't call my mom, sometimes she'll call me and say, you haven't called me, and da, da, da. I'm like, yeah, I know, and I feel guilty about it, right? And so we got to call, you got to call your parents. And uh, I've got to be a good brother. I'm the oldest of seven children. And I'm supposed to set the example for my siblings. I'm supposed to love them and encourage them, but I'm not supposed, they're all adults now. I'm not supposed to push them too hard. If I push too hard, uh, then I'm not being kind and, and I'm not being encouraging. I'm going to be a good husband uh, by being faithful to my wife. And I'm also supposed to take my wife out on dates and I'm supposed to help out around the house and I'm supposed to balance her emotions and allow her to balance my lack of emotional sensibility because I have a lack of emotional sensibility. And then I'm to be a good Father, I'm to set a good example for my children. I'm to spend time with them. I'm to attend all their activities. I'm to be at all their sporting events and piano recitals. I'm I'm to be at the dinner table so to enjoy uh, family time. Sometimes I'm over here at the church and I'm working and maybe I'm in a meeting or, or I'm on a long phone call and, and and dinner's getting put on the table and and my daughter will come and she'll knock on this window right out here and I'll see see her standing out there and I'll go and. I'm on the phone or in a meeting, and I'll go over and I'll let her in. She'll say, Dad, are you coming home for dinner? Are you going to be at dinner? And you know what? To both my both of my children, Dad being at the dinner table is a big, big deal. They want me there. And so I've had to learn that and just say, I can't miss this. I've got to be there. Uh, uh, so don't call me at dinner time. Amen? Uh, you say, what time is dinner time? From 4 to 8 p.m. Amen? <laughs> Anywhere in that range, we may be eating dinner. Uh, but... Uh, uh, dinner time. And so there's this expectation that I'm to be there as a dad and as a husband at the dinner table with my family. And and, and then uh, I'm to teach my son how to be a man. And I'm to love my daughter and show her how a man is supposed to treat a, a lady. And then there are not only familial expectations, but there are faith expectations. Faith expectations. We're commanded to love the Lord with all our hearts. The Bible teaches that we're to read and pray daily. Read the Bible and pray daily. The Bible teaches you're to share your faith with the world around you. 
The Bible teaches you're to be faithful to church. The Bible, God bless you. The Bible teaches that we're to give toward the work of the Lord in the offering plate. The Bible teaches we're to serve the Lord through the local church. And the Bible teaches we're to grow in God's grace year after year. Some of you go, wow, Pastor, I didn't know I had so many expectations until I came to church, and now I'm exhausted. Amen? <laughs> I'm exhausted. How many of you can relate with many of these things that there are a lot of expectations put on all of us? Our expectations. We're talking about being how the formula to become rich. First, we have to understand what our expectations are. Letter A, we saw the types. Letter B, notice the tug of war. The tug of war. Where does discontentment come from? Where does discontentment come from? It occurs when the expectations on us are not met. We have expectations we put on ourselves, and when those are not met, we become discontent. Oftentimes, listen up this morning, oftentimes expectations clash. Let me give you a few examples here. When family expectations are up against faith expectations, okay? You make a decision, you know what? We're going to start going to church on Sunday evening. And I would love it if a few more of you would make that decision, all right? But let's say those of you that have made that choice that you're going to be here Sunday morning and Sunday evening, and you're just going to do it, and, and you're just going to make it happen, right? By the way, you make that decision, I promise you, within the first four, five, six times, you're going to go to church on Sunday night, you're going to have something major that tries to keep you from going. I promise you that. How many of you come on Sunday nights and the first time you decided to start coming, there was something that tried to keep you from coming? How many of you know what I'm talking about here? And you know what? You have to push through. New levels bring new devils. And if you're going to make a choice to start coming, there's going to be an obstruction to you coming. Some of you just need to make a decision you're going to be here every Sunday morning. And you're going to find there's going to be obstructions to that. You just have to push through and make the choice to come. But you've committed, I'm going to come to church on Sunday evening. But after church Sunday morning, you go over to a family member's house and you're eating some dinner, eating some lunch rather, and uh, you are sitting there uh, and it's it's 3.30 and it's 4 o'clock and it's 4.30 and you know church starts at 5 and then this tug of war starts to take place in your heart. Do I disappoint my family and go to church? Or do, I go to, or, or do I stay home and disappoint the Lord on this commitment I've made? You all with me this morning? If you go to church, you're going to feel guilty that you left your family. If you stay there with your family, you're going to feel guilty you didn't go to church. You see how the expectations clash? we got this tug of war going on in our heart. we got this headbutting going on in our heart. Let me give you another one here. Work versus family. Work versus family. Your boss comes to you and says, I need you to work some overtime this evening. Maybe your boss says, the end of the quarter is approaching and we have deadlines to meet. And you say, I can't stay. My daughter has an event at school. Or I can't stay. I have a date scheduled with my wife or my husband this evening. Your boss says something manipulative like this. You know, we're handing out bonus checks at the end of the quarter. Just something you may want to keep in mind as you decide on overtime. And you think, oh, I need that bonus check. Work versus family. Here you have a tug of war going on. Do I, do I, keep, do I stay at work? And forego a little bit of family time? Do I go home with family and then miss out on needed money? Here's another tug of war. Faith expectations versus financial expectations. Faith expectations. Listen, this one happens a lot. 
All right, I know, I know that I'm preaching right where we're living on this one. All right, faith expectations versus financial expectations. You've been eyeing up that new car or that new truck, and you think to yourself, "Oh man, I would love to have that." Maybe it's not a brand new one, but new to you. And you think to yourself, "You know what, self? I work. You work hard." And you've never owned something like that before. And self, you deserve that car. You deserve that truck. You deserve that new cell phone. You deserve that fill in the blank. But then you go to church and you see pictures put up on the screen about children who live in Bangladesh who need Jesus. And the church needs money to be able to send a missionary to go. Look down at 1 Timothy 6. Look at verse 11. But thou, O man of God, speaking about financial wealth, flee these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Look here. Lay hold, grab hold, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. What do you do? If you buy the new vehicle, now you don't have the money to give toward the work at the church. You don't have money to give toward benevolence. You don't have money to give toward uh, the offering plate. Uh, you're, you're, You're lacking in your ability to give, but you enjoy that comfortable car, But if you give to missions, now you've got to drive that car that maybe is a little bit old. You have to wear those clothes that are maybe a little bit threadbare. There is a tug of war. A tug of war. Number one, we see our expectations. Number two, notice God's equation. God's equation. I've tried my best in the beginning of the sermon here to lay out the problem. Now let's look at the solution. Let's look at the solution. So with all these expectations put on us by ourselves and everyone around us, how do we manage? How do we find contentment in a world filled with pressures and discontentment? Paul shares with us this equation in verse 6. Look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's read that together. Let's read it with some enthusiasm. Can we do that? Here we go. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Turn over to Psalm chapter number 23. Hold your place in 1 Timothy 6. Psalm 23. I don't know about you, I love it when the Bible makes things simple. Simple. Uh, I am not a deep, deep, deep person, okay? Um, I was sitting with someone the other day, and they were sharing with me some Bible theory. And I looked at the person and said, that went right over my head. I have no idea what that meant. I said, I'm not smart enough to hang with you. I'm sorry. And they looked at me and said, oh, you're just being modest. And I said, no, I'm not being modest. I have no idea what that means. And so I like when the Bible makes things simple. How many of you with me this morning? Simple is good. All right. Uh, the Bible makes things very simple in the 23rd Psalm when it talks about this concept here. All right. Uh, I, um, uh, God has given us a simple math equation or formula that will help us. You add these two characteristics in your life, and God will prosper you beyond your wildest belief. All right, letter A, notice the word godliness. Godliness, all right? Look at Psalm 23 
and look at verse 1. Notice the first five words of the verse. The Lord is my shepherd. Read that with me. Ready? The Lord is my shepherd. Now, these are five very powerful words. Let's break this down this morning. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. You know what that means? That means David said that not only is the Lord a shepherd, He is my shepherd. He is personal to me. And listen, there's a flock over there without a shepherd and they're wandering around and they're afraid and, and they've eaten all the grass up in that field and they don't know how to go or where to go. And when it rains, they're scared and there's no shepherd to comfort them. But the Lord is my shepherd. He belongs to me. I, David says, have a personal relationship with my shepherd. I have a shepherd. He belongs to To me, you see, if you're going to be godly, then God has to become personal to you. Personal to you. Uh, There are a whole lot of people out there, they have what I'll call a formalistic dead religion. They, they have some things they, they say and some, uh, some actions that they do and they have some habits that bring about comfort their direction. And I'm not just talking about the Catholics and the Muslims. I'm not just talking about the Presbyterians and the Episcopals. I'm talking about Baptists. Baptists. We are formalistic. We have our little regimen and routine that we go through. And we believe that somehow we're godly because every Sunday morning we put on uh, some clothes and we get a Bible and we head on to church and we endure Pastor Lejeune for 45 minutes to an hour. And then we get up and we leave and we check the box. All right, I went to church. That makes me godly. Going to church doesn't make you godly. Going to church doesn't make you godly. Now, it is something a godly person does. That alone doesn't make you godly. You think, well, I picked up my Bible and I read three chapters this morning and I checked the box off my reading chart and I spent 15 minutes praying for the same things I pray for every day. Check the box. I'm spiritual, I'm godly. My friend, that does not make you godly. That does not make you godly. You see, religion is not about, uh, uh, religion is not about formality. Religion should lead to a relationship. Are you godly this morning? That idea of being godly means that you are like God. You're like God. Another way of looking at this is, are you righteous? To be righteous means that you are in right standing with God. I want you to imagine that you're driving down the road, you're in a car all by yourself. And all of a sudden you look over and Jesus Christ is sitting in your passenger seat. He turns and He looks at you. He just looks at you. What is your initial feeling? Are you excited? I mean, yeah, you're startled, right? There was nobody there. And, oh, look, someone's there. Once you get past the startled feeling of someone just appearing in your car, and you understand that it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going on a long car ride with Him, and you know He knows every thought you think, the veneer you put on at church, gone. He knows. He knows. What's your thought? What's your feeling? Are you excited that He's there? Or are you guilty that you have to share a long card ride with Him? Because you've got things in your life that you know aren't right. Godliness. You see, you cannot be content. You cannot be rich until you learn godliness. There are many, many people in this world who have lots and lots of money, but they're poor. They're poor. 
You say, well, well, money buys happiness. Money does buy short-term happiness. Money does not buy joy. It cannot buy joy. It will never buy joy. Money can buy you peace of mind about your future. Money can buy you a lot of things, but money cannot buy you, uh, uh, money cannot make you rich, godly. The Lord is my shepherd. But notice those same five words. Let's put the emphasis, let's put the emphasis on a different syllable. Can we do that? Let's put the emphasis somewhere else. Look at that same five words. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. Uh, listen, above all else, if the Lord is your Lord, then He is in charge of you and He's looking after you. When I think about the Lord and I think about myself, I think about how much smarter He is than me. I think about how much richer He is than me in every way. I think about how He already knows my future and what's best for me. And I picture a loving Savior who has a staff in His hand and that staff's got a hook on it. And as soon as I start to wander off, he uses that hook and goes, whoop, come right back over here. The second I start to feel afraid, and my spirit gets sideways on something, I go and I run to the Lord, and I pick up my Bible, and I begin to read it, and I get on my knees and pray. You know what God's doing that time? He's picking me up like a little lamb into his lap, and he's comforting my spirit. He's being my shepherd. And there's a whole lot of Christians in this world today. You have a, a God in the fact that you're safe, but you're just wandering off like that one sheep that's left the flock. And you're wandering off somewhere into some field. And the shepherd's not there to save you when you stumble over the edge of a cliff or when the rain falls. And, and you're going through life's hardships. And yes, you're saved, but the Lord is not truly your shepherd. Because you won't let Him be. You see, you will never learn to be rich until you learn to put your faith in the shepherd. You will never be godly until you make the Lord your shepherd, your shepherd. Godliness. Godliness. Are you godly this morning? If you were to have to ask, if you were forced to answer that question to the face of God Himself, could you look the Lord in the eye and say, I'm making a genuine effort at being godly? Or would you have to put your head down in shame and say, I'm too consumed with the things of this world to really call myself godly. You see, you cannot be rich until you make a, 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 a genuine effort at being godly. Letter A, godliness. Letter B, godliness plus contentment. Godliness plus contentment. Back in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Godliness Plus contentment. Look back at Psalm 23 and verse 1. Notice there it says, The Lord is my shepherd. Let's read the rest of that verse together, can we? I shall not want. You know what that means? I'm content. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There will be no discontentment within me. Now, everybody look up here for, at me for a minute. Look right up here. Everybody right up here. I have some principles about contentment I want to share with you. I need you to pay attention on purpose. Alright? I'm not going to be up and down off the platform. I don't know that I'll use a lot of voice flexation. These principles I found studying for this message hit me right between the eyes. God was working on my heart through some of this. We're going to put the principles up on the screen. If you have an extra piece of paper somewhere, please, I beg you, 
write these down, write the verses down with them, and really, really, really go home and study this for yourself. Contentment, first principle, contentment is contrary to human nature and must be learned. Contentment is contrary to human nature and must be learned. We long for a better environment in which to live, assuming that with it we will achieve contentment. Yet, Adam and Eve had the perfect environment, and they were not content in it. They had perfect health, they had a perfect marriage, they had a perfect garden, and they had daily fellowship with God Himself, yet they soon believed the lie that God had not provided everything they needed for their present future happiness. If Adam and Eve were not content in the Garden of Eden, what hope is there for the rest of us? Apart from the spiritual insight that comes from God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned. I have learned. Why? Because this is a learned behavior. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Contentment is contrary to human nature and must be learned. Next principle. Contentment requires distinguishing between needs and wants. Contentment requires distinguishing between needs and and wants. There are a few things in life that are really necessary. In fact, God identified just two items that are needs. Look back at 1 Timothy 6 and look at verse 8. 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 8. Let's read it together. Everybody there? 1 Timothy 6, 8. Ready? Here we go. And having food and raiment, let us therewith con- let us be therewith content. One more time. Here we go. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. What are the two items that the Bible labels as a need? Food and raiment. If we are not content with the basics of food and clothing, we will never be content no matter how many things we obtain. God has promised to provide our needs. Take your Bibles over to Matthew 6. God has promised to provide our needs. However, He has not assured us that, he, that we will get all our wants. We tend to spend... Oh, I hope you're listening right now. We tend to spend our resources on wants and then worry about our needs. We spend our resources on wants and then we worry about our needs. Jesus warned about such concern. Look at Matthew 6, look at verse 31. Jesus says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Let's read verse 33. Ready? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus says that if you'll pursue my kingdom, and you'll be rich toward God in heaven, that your needs He will automatically take care of. He will take care of your needs. Now, He's not going to take care of your wants per se. There's no guarantee on that. But your needs will be met. So contentment requires distinguishing between needs and wants. You do not need a microwave. You don't need a smartphone. You don't need a luxury vehicle with a top trim package. You with me? You want those things. 
You don't need to eat out 5.9 times per week, like we looked at last week, right? We talked about how the average American eats out 5.9 times per week. You don't need to do that. And you know what? We spend our money on needs, or rather a wants, and then we wonder, oh, how are my needs going to be met? Principle number three, contentment is based on a recognition of mutual need. Now, this is a really neat thought. Contentment is based on a recognition of mutual need. One of the great mysteries and wonders of life is that God has a need for each one of us. He desires our fellowship. And He needs our bodies to be the temple of His Holy Spirit. He needs the members of our bodies to be the instruments to righteousness to do His will here on earth. Because He chooses to work through believers. Are you seeing this now? God needs me and you. He needs us. In return, now watch this, God created us to have a daily need for Him. He did not create us to survive on one meal a month, but on daily food. That's why He taught us to pray, Matthew 6:11, give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. Why do we need daily bread? Therewith having food and raiment be content. Why do we need daily bread? So that we'll pray that God will give it to us. Do you pray for God to provide for your daily needs? Or do you just expect them to come? By the way, listen up. Expecting things to continue to come is entitlement. And entitlement is a big problem with our culture today. Romans 1 says that neither were they grateful. You know, what that, you know what that means? They were entitled. They were entitled. He also pointed out in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Why? God wants us not only to live off daily food, He wants us to live off a daily walk with Him. Each day you get on your knees and you pray, God is satisfying something He put inside of you. I have a pure bottle of water. I've talked about last week how I love to drink Coke Zero and sweet tea. But I need to drink this. This, I need this every day. Every day. I need to drink this. Um, some of you in here are discontent because you're not drinking the water of God's Word and He made you to drink that every day. You have an appetite that is perverse. And I don't mean sexually perverse. I just mean out of order. Contentment is based on a recognition of mutual need. The Lord needs you, and He made you to need Him. Next, discontentment begins by desiring self-sufficiency. Discontentment begins by desiring self-sufficiency. Now, when either partner in a marriage becomes self-sufficient, the love relationship is damaged because joy and grace come from giving and receiving. The temptation of Adam and Eve was not simply to taste some forbidden fruit, but to be self-sufficient and no longer need God. The subtle serpent told them, as, uh, told them that if they ate the fruit, they would be as gods. Be as gods and be able to decide for themselves good and evil. You know what he's saying to them? You don't need to be dependent on God. You can be self 
sufficient. Oh, how we have fallen into this trap. Next, discontentment leads to covetousness. When a brother complained about not receiving his fair share of an inheritance, Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Oh, this verse is critical. Luke 12, 15 again. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Beware of wanting things that you don't have. Beware of wanting things that you shouldn't have. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. When I look at what I don't have, I become self-sufficient to go get it because I don't trust the hand of God and I don't trust the will of God. God's will says I don't want you to have that right now, but I say, God, I'm not going to depend on you. I'm going to depend on myself and I'm going to depend on myself and I'm going to go get the money and I'm going to go out and buy something that I shouldn't have out of time. I'm going to go out and have something that I shouldn't have before it's time and that's discontentment that leads to covetousness. Next, covetousness produces idolatry. Covetousness produces idolatry. If we desire what God has not given to us, but what He has given to others, we are guilty of coveting, and this is a violation of the Tenth Commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservants, nor his maidservants, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. When we expect uh, from possessions or people what only God can give, we turn them into idols and we become guilty of, of, uh, of idolatry. For example, if we expect security from money, we've made money an idol because only God can give true security. Likewise, if we expect fulfillment from wealth or expensive possessions, uh, we make those things an idol. The same is true if we look to food or diets alone for health. We've now turned that into an idol. Next, next principle. Contentment is achieved by exchanging things for more of Christ. Contentment is achieved by exchanging things for more of Christ. Someone has wisely observed that Jesus is all we need. But we will not know it until he, He is all that we have. Paul understood this truth um, by exchanging things for more of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that strong language, that I may win Christ. He said, I'm going to give up all of my things because these things are keeping me from a deeper walk with God. He said, as I exchange my desire for things, my desire to know Christ becomes greater and my intimacy with Christ grows deeper. Uh, next, next thought here. Contentment allows us to gain um, things of greater value. Contentment allows us to gain things of greater value. Contentment is setting our affection on eternal treasures rather on temporal possessions. It is experiencing the qualities of godliness without the distractions of earthly cares. 
Jesus warned about the conflict between temporal things and eternal riches when he spoke of the seed falling into different types of soils. Take your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 12, quickly. Matthew chapter 12, I want you to see this verse because I think this verse sums up much of what we're talking about. You cannot be rich until you learn to be content with the bare basic needs of life. If you're constantly reaching for bigger and better things, what you're saying is, Christ is not enough. I need these things in place of Christ. To make it practical, I think a lot of folks are not in church on Sunday because they're busy cleaning a house. A lot of people aren't going out to share the gospel with people on a Saturday because they're going to the, they're going to the, they're going to the, the, the car wash to vacuum out their car. People cannot serve the Lord as they should, uh, cannot give financially to the church uh, because they're using their money uh, to go buy movie tickets or some uh, uh, illustrious vacation. And what are we doing? We're saying that these things make me happy. I'm self-sufficient. I will buy my own happiness instead of gaining Christ so that He can give me greater happiness. Look at Matthew 12, look at verse 22. He also that receives seed among the thorns is He that heareth the word and the care of this world. And look here, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches. Oh, if I could only have more money. I'm going to repeat something I said last week. The greatest lie that Satan has tried to sell the American church is that you can indeed serve both God and money. He has sold that lie to Christians all over this country. He has sold that lie to many of you. You can serve God and mammon. I want to ask you a question before we move on here. I'm almost done. i got half a page of notes, about five minutes left of preaching. Before I get to that, I want to ask you one question. I want to ask you as though I was just asking it directly to you. Do you love money? Be honest with yourself. Do you love money? It's really hard to say, no, I hate money. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Do you love money? Do you love money more than you love Christ? Before you just think to yourself, no, I love Christ more, what do your actions show? You show me how you spend your money. I'll show you where your affection lies. You say, Pastor, here you go. You're grabbing at our wallets. No, no, no. Matthew 6, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, you show me that checkbook, I'll show you where your affection lies. Paul said, I want a minimalist lifestyle on earth. I don't want things getting between me and a deeper knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Letter C. Let's finish the formula. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. This is the equation to becoming rich. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Go back to Psalm 23 with me. Look at verse 5 and 6. David said, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
David said, I learned to let the shepherd be enough. I don't want things because I have my shepherd. At the end of the chapter, he says, you know what? I have more than just a shepherd. I have a table prepared before me in the presence of mine enemies. I have a cup that runs over. I have a head anointed with the Holy Ghost or with oil. He said in verse 6, he says, Goodness and mercy follow me around everywhere I go and will do so all the days of my life. And he said, and on top of all that, I get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He said, how could a man be richer than that? He found that God was all he needed. Rich is not defined by the total value of one's possessions, but rather his attitude toward the things that he has. If Christians would concern themselves with pursuing godliness with the same fervor that they did material goods, then Christians would find God's favor and Christians would find contentment. This, my friend, is great gain. Great gain. This is peace. This is fulfillment. This is the elusive trait that kings and wealthy aristocrats have searched for and failed to obtain since the beginning of time. I end the sermon with a question that is the title of our series, Are You Rich Toward God? Boy, if we could go up to heaven and we could walk up to heaven's bank teller and we could uh, stand there and say, okay, show us the, uh, show us the uh, amount in the account. Show us the balance in the account for... Insert your name. What would come back? Oh man, this guy's wealthy. Oh man, this guy, this, this lady, she's, she's got a lot up here. Or, you know what? We've got, this looks like a child savings account. We've got 20 bucks in here. $21.26. Are you rich toward God? Are you eternally minded in those efforts to build up that account? Or you don't have time for eternal account because your earthly account. What is the formula to become rich? Say it with me. It's there on the back of your bulletin. Say it with me. Here we go. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. One more time. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Are you godly? Are you content? If you are those two things, I promise you, you're not worried about what you have here on earth. First Timothy 6, 6.8 But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Are you rich toward God? Are you following God's formula to become rich? You see, worldliness plus discontentment equals misery. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. I've given out a lot of truth this morning and the Spirit of God has applied that truth to hearts differently depending on the person. Some of you in here struggle with being godly. Others of you in here struggle with being content. All of us in here have room to improve.